Yazare. Miawizo. Ekabo. Senudezua. And welcome to another episode of Africa's Untold Stories. If you heard two weird voices towards the end, that was on purpose. <laughs> Uh, today's episode is a uh, collaboration and we are pleased to welcome two people from the Orire Institute of African Knowledge. Orire yes. yes. University? <laughs> yes, basically a media center in the University of African History. All in one, All in and one. a think tank. Very yes. cool. Uh, hi, I'm Ceci. Hi everyone, I'm Halima. Nice to be on the African Untold Stories podcast. Yeah, we're from Orire. Orire is a platform that tells African stories, and we also have a podcast. Yeah, so the university we talked about, that's that's <laughs> that's what she's saying. All right, let's jump in, Brian. What are we talking about? <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, so today they are taking the lead, and we are taking the background, which means we didn't have to prepare for this episode, Yay. thankfully. Let's work. We get to badger them with questions mm. and no pressure. <laughs> so, um, no pressure. Thank you for joining us guys. Uh, please let us know what we'd be discussing today and then you can take it off from there. Today, we're going to be talking about African storytelling, specifically how it has evolved, you know, um, from what it was historically to what it is now. So should we just like jump right into it and do a little bit of an introduction just on the topic? Jump right into it. Jump right in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're African, or even if you're not, you probably already know um, how stories have always been told in a lot of African cultures, which primarily was orally, you know, people sitting figuratively around the fire, also literally, and listening to a storyteller tell them a folktale, a chronicle, you know something interesting um and historically it has been a tradition and storytelling was also a profession basically every culture in the world tells stories um i don't think it's something that's unique to africans at all it's what makes it different though is just usually what type of stories they tell what was the content of those stories and how those stories were told because stories are a way for people to make sense of the world of a world that seems very confusing, especially before, you know, the advent of, let's call it globalization or mm. um, colonization. <laughs> All the Asians, um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> storytelling was, you know, a way for people to make sense of the world and especially a way for people to pass down their um, values, their uh, culture, their history, their lessons to the young ones and basically outsiders and anybody else that they wanted to learn about this culture right yes interesting so um i do like that you mentioned that storytelling did have a point because that was one thing when you're researching african history and you get a, come across these oral accounts of certain uh actual historical events yes. you'd find out there is a lot of embellishments that goes so on so beautiful and I guess that, yes, that goes to show that there is a point to the stories. And sometimes it's not historical accuracy. It's not the point of the story. It's the lesson in there. It's the message or the culture that's being passed on. That, that's the point of the story. The glorification of a certain figure who is the subject of the story. Yes. 
Um, I definitely fully agree with you in that you will hardly ever find an African story, so to speak, that doesn't have some kind of moral point behind it. Um, Mm. Whether the moral point is, you know, basically a lesson saying something like, oh, don't be too arrogant or respect your elders or, you know, listen to people's advice or respect this God or respect that God or, you know, don't do this thing on Sundays because it's taboo. Um, Basically, (laughs) (laughs) there was always a point to these stories. They always had a function. They always had a purpose and they weren't always literal. They weren't always, you know, you weren't supposed to take them just as they are but usually within the story of like a tortoise and a hare there is basically i want to call it like medicine stuffed in there and you just have to drink it down and learn what the message behind it is supposed to be so so you mentioned um religious stories you mentioned the tortoise and the hare and how those stories carry moral lessons um, no, no, I'm not saying, well, yeah, sometimes the religious, when I say religious, I don't mean like Christianity or whatever. I'm talking about African uh-huh. religion. Um, uh-huh. But usually the story is featuring animals um, kind of in place of humans are usually stories that we used to tell moral lessons. Like you might have heard the story of the tortoise and the hare, which basically yes. is telling you in life that, you know, it's what, what's it, slow and steady wins the race. It's mm. not always the, the, yeah, the fastest. Again. Yes. But one sticking point for me, whenever I consider, and especially one of the reasons that we started Oriwe in the first place, is just how unfortunate it is that a lot of African history, a lot of African mythology was just not recorded. So while we did have these traditions, we had these cultures, we passed them down, we talked about them a lot, we spoke about them. Unfortunately, we didn't write them down. <laughs> Um, and, and that is one thing that I I feel has majorly disadvantaged many African regions. Just the fact that, you know, other regions, they wrote their stories down. So people, you know, years, decades, centuries in the future, were able to see those and then say, yes, look, we have evidence that our people were so civilized and they were so amazing and the Africans were savages. But like yeah, it's it's, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a fallacy, you know. It's it's, a, it's like a logical fallacy in a way because it doesn't mean that Africans were not as civilized as you. In fact, we have evidence that they were. We have evidence that they built cities, like we talked about in our recent episode where we talked about ancient African cities with you guys. We have evidence that they did a lot of things that they did. But just because they didn't write it down, it doesn't exist. It's, mm. it's very frustrating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think I think. Um... I don't remember what it was I was listening to the other day and there was this discussion going on and one of the things they mentioned was one of the downsides of oral tradition is that it's easy to lose it. Yeah. Because as opposed to writing that can easily be transferred and stored somewhere else, if you are relying on your stories to be told by passing it down <coughs> verbally to the next generation, all that is needed is one generation that is disconnected for you to lose a lot. Exactly. And that's literally what happened to us. Very, exactly. very true. But I guess on the... F- but I said, I, I guess on the flip side, the way you mentioned that we like to tell our stories with a lot of performance and theater, right? I guess if if we... I, I mean, definitely, have, writing it down doesn't take away the fact that you can perform it out. But I guess the fact that there was no written version of it means that... 
their performances carried like a lot of weight in the society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just going to add that mm-hmm. in addition to like the oral argument and whatnot, right? Like one of the negative sides of telling our stories orally is that a lot can get lost in translation. Say, for example, um, Ceci tells me a story and I want to narrate the story to Sarah. My version is going to be definitely different from the way Ceci tells it, right? And then says um, Sarah wants to tell Brian, he's going to tell it differently. So the authenticity of the story, while not like losing the essence, something gets lost in like from trans- from transferring it from one person to another person. So... I agree with you, but I think there's two schools of thought on that. So one school of thought, which makes total sense, is that, of course, a lot gets lost in trans. It's like that whispers game, where by the time you reach the 10th person, you're not quite saying the same words anymore. But at the same time, I like to think that everyone that is ad- that's listening to the story adds something on as they tell the next person. So like, I'm looking at it as kind of an evolution or an addition to the story rather than as things being lost in time. So basically when that story migrates from, you know, a West African region, the West African region from a West African culture or whatever to maybe somewhere in East Africa, it's a different story now. And they've replaced the the, um, main characters in the story with characters that resonate more with their own culture. But, you know, they're still running themes and I think that this is partly why a lot of um, different African cultures have running themes in their stories. Like, the, you know, you always see kind of the same characters over and over again. There's always the trickster and there's like the smart, wise one and there's mm-hmm. the dumb one. And the, I mean, these are kind of the archetypes that have stood the test of time. There's also the old wise elder that very, you're supposed very to listen present to. in every story that old wise <laughs> yeah and so so i so i want to um with regards to telling the stories the um, before the modern era how we told our stories of course there were some places that um in africa that had a, a very old writing tradition so parts of north africa and parts of east africa we know with like with the gears and the likes mm-hmm. they did write some of their stories down some, not all. They still did a lot of oral history too. Yeah. But also with Western Africa, we know that um, we began to write some of our stories with the advent of the Islam. But even then, it was very little that we were writing. It was mainly the historical stuff and not really the the folklore that we were really writing down. But then with the arrival of the um, Western writing styles, that's when we really began to write down our folklore. And I try to um, make this uh, equation, right? So because I know when, when we are comparing African stories to ones that are non-African, there is this tendency to make some sort of uh, equations to, for, for the foreigners to, to understand what it is they are looking at or to make sense of what they are looking at. So try to equate certain themes or certain characters from uh, from the foreign uh, stories to the local African ones. So I was hoping you guys have some examples for us yes. in that sphere of things. Yes, one particularly frustrating, I think, um, equation or attempt at equating um, an African kind of story or an African um cultural figure, let's say, to a European one, is 
during the in the process of translating the English Bible to Yoruba, Samuel Ajayi Crowther replaced the devil with Eshu. Now, mm. in in Yoruba mythology, Eshu is is a god. And he's the trickster god. So, I mean, for people who are, he's kind of the Yoruba equivalent to other trickster gods in in other pantheons like Anansi or Loki. Okay. Um, okay. And yeah, he he was just a trickster, and then all of a sudden, Eshu became the devil, which you know was just not the case at all. And even now, till now. Ishu is the devil in 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 Yoruba land, basically everywhere. Whenever you hear Ishu, it's a bad thing. It's the devil. Mm. And people don't really see and don't really understand that, you know, actually this is something that got lost in translation. And I think that this is how easy it is for history or for things to just change. Um, and for people to immediately, the new version becomes the real version. And that version grows legs. And that's the version that everybody's going to remember forever now. Because somebody made a mistake or somebody, you know, didn't think things through or somebody was just trying to force, let's say, a square peg into a round hole. And this is Mm. one of the problems when other people tell your own stories or other people make you kind of change your own stories to fit their vision of what your story should be. So um, one of my favorite speeches ever I really do, generally don't like speeches, but you know Chimavanda did that TED Talk, right? This was very, very mm. big, 10 years ago, whatever, when she talked about the danger of a single story and how when she was younger, she'd only read, you know, um, stories about European cultures, about America, about Britain, and she'd never really read stories about Africa. So whenever she was trying to write stories, she would reference things that were just were just not relevant to her. Like um, she would talk about snow and she would talk about ginger beer and all these things that just are not things that we really encounter in most of Africa. Um, so yes, it, it's, it's a real problem. It's a real issue and it's very unfortunate. But at least now that globalization has given us somewhat of an advantage in that we also have the same ability and the same capacity, almost, to record our history or our what we remember of our history <laughs> as they do. Let's and I just want to add that, yeah, I just want to say a quick thing. So while, um, for example, the dude, I think he's, is it not Samuel Ajayi Crowder that converted? Um, yep. Yoruba, yep. yeah, like the Bible, right? I I like to think that again, this is also like the danger of like the single story because we really don't know what happened. Like for him, like comparing no. issue to the devil because I like to, to think, the devil. He, yeah, the way he probably interpreted it, the way I think he interpreted it is the way the um Christian missionaries probably told the story of like the devil as this trickster that is coming to like um deceive them or like take them away from God or something. So I don't think he meant to tell an incorrect version, do you guess? But his level of interpretation was okay <laughs> in the Yoruba culture it they should do something similar, do you get and then the way he could turn this into like the Yoruba language was okay. The way I can tell these people these stories by telling them issue is um the devil. Like it's just basically a level of understanding. I don't think I'm I'm explaining myself coherently. No, it makes total sense to me. And I actually like your interpretation of it. I want to believe that that is the case. Because I like to think saying that um, is incorrect or something is, is, is unfair. Like, it's, it's a lot. Like, 
we might be wrong we might not be we might be correct but i just think it's just the way he understood it you get so the only um thing in the yoruba mythology that he could compare the devil to was issue and that's it like that's just it i just think it's so that's it's, how it's that came up oh. yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah no i mean mm-hmm. it does make what you are saying does make a lot of it sense because sense. if you look at a lot of the the religions actually or like let's see if we if we come back home to ghana there's a there's a lot of names that we give we assign to the christian god that used to be gods or deities in like the indigenous like mm-hmm. indigenous cultures as well so i guess th- your theory also makes a lot of sense that the closest you could relate yeah the devil mm-hmm. to was issue from his understanding mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah it does bring a it does bring a very interesting point across but at least now we tell our own stories now thanks to globalization mm-hmm. like Ceci mentioned and we have a bunch of writers like you've already mentioned a couple of them do you do you have a bit more or some some more you want to throw light on some more you want to expose to the audience who tell some very interesting african stories yeah, before we, oh, before we go answer on. that question, yeah, before we answer that question, mm-hmm. I just have a quick question. So, do you guys think like modern African writers do a good job at telling like our stories exactly as it is? Or do you think they try to make it more accessible for like Western consumers? Or do you think they actually tell our stories the way it is? Well, I think, I think they are products of their times. Yes. For starters, the stories as they are is debatable because <laughs> the way it evolves over time, the way the stories even change over time, it's 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 hard to know what the actual original story was to begin with. Yes, and I also think it also um, has this angle of um, the the fact that stories the way stories are told in their own self tends to have this um let me say evolving characteristic depending on what time and what dates that you're looking at Uh, because if you if you're telling a story right and you have contact with people from other cultures at some point in time and the, the way you tell your story is a bit influenced by the way they tell their stories so I think it could also be linked to that because, for example, I know that um, when you pick certain African um, ethnic groups, when they are telling their origin stories, some of them have found a way to link themselves to the Arabian Peninsula somehow. They are not from there, but the origin story, their oral tradition has found a way to blend that in there, you know. To have that link because there is a purpose for that it's a religious purpose that's why they do it mm-hmm. some sort of um validation um so my own perspective well first of all i agree with brian's um it's a they're a product of their times uh statement because i think it's very true i think a lot of contemporary african writers who write you know about contemporary africans are actually very accurate in their writing because contemporary africans i mean they're very different they speak english a lot of them, most of them, or they speak, you know, not their traditional language. They share a lot of characteristics with people from America or the UK. Once again, globalization, my favorite word in this podcast episode, Um, because now we are a lot more similar to people who are, you know, far away from us. And there's a lot of cultural bleed. You know, we watch their TV shows. We talk like them. 
we think like them in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that they're completely accurate. A lot of my, a lot of my favorite recent African reads, reads by African writers, I can recognize myself in these people as a contemporary African. Um, and I don't believe that there are lots of contemporary African books or a lot of African books recently that are trying to depict historical Africans, you know, in the past. I was going to ask about that. Actually. Yeah, I, I mean, not not in my not from my reading experience. I haven't really seen too many of those, so I can't really say how they are depicting them. Now, if we're talking about how other people write about Africa, not writers, <laughs> but people who like us like to think about African history, like to document it, like to talk about it online. Do I think that they're accurate? No. Um, a lot of them or a lot of people. Uh, I think that unfortunately people it, often fall into the trap of Hotepri. <laughs> I just talked about Hotepri in a recent episode we did where, wherein they just, they just kind of mix it all up in their heads. You know, they don't really want to, th they think of Africa as a monolith in a way. And they suddenly imagine that yeah, every yeah. single African was a king you know, once in, in wow. Egypt yes. oh and they God. were, they were descendants of Cleopatra or some other oh. pharaoh Ramses oh. or, you Stop. know, it's just, the, the truth is we were not all kings <laughs> or queens. We were farmers. We were, we were just regular people. And I don't think it's productive <laughs> the way that a lot of people write about African history now. And I don't think it's accurate. No um so yeah but so i i have i have another question so regarding regarding the way the stories were told before and then the way they're they are told now um how would you how would you compare or how would you um let me say how would you relate the way african history sorry african stories back then were being um were being told to how they are being told now and their impact on society back then as compared to their impact on society now. Because we know, for example, if we picked um, certain places, certain things were not done because of the kind of stories that were told that people thought in particular ways. But now, is that really still the case? What's the connection between the impact, uh, the way stories were told then and then the impact they had on the societies that they were told in back then as opposed to what's happening today? I think that comparing like history to um, historical or ancient um, storytellers and contemporary storytellers is basically the same thing, right? Like you said earlier, <clears throat> a lot of stories and a lot of authors, a lot of the contents they push out is because it's basically a product of their time. It's like what they see. Like So historical storytellers, I imagine like, the stories they used to tell, it was a reflection of their society. And the ones we have now, they're telling like what they can observe and what they see from current society. And then the impact of these stories, I, again, logically, I just think it's the same, right? Like you, people are influenced to different degrees. So historically, say um, they're trying to create a social change awareness or something, and someone is trying to say people should stop stealing in the community. However, that story is interpreted, right? It depends on who is receiving it. So I imagine the impact is 
it's the same thing because it's, it's subjective. That's my point. So I think that the impact depends on who's receiving the story and how they interpret it and how they decide to use whatever lessons or whatever um, elements of that story resonates with them. So that is what I think. And then I just, another thing that I think that is slightly different is historically africans use um, we used a lot of proverbs in our stories and like in our storytelling these days arguably they're not a lot of like proverbs that's you know like how they'll be like the child yeah. that moves uh, at night or some something very deep right and then these <laughs> days i don't nobody cares wow. that about that. for example i'll just roll my eyes if someone says that's right so mm-hmm that is the major difference I see, but then the impact and like the nature of storytelling, I think it reflects the society and like the current times we live in. Does that answer your question, Brian? Yes, for the most part. So also, um, okay, I guess actually it does answer. You talked about it on a personal level. Although you did talk about that on a personal level, um, when I asked the, the impact on society and you said it depends on the, the people who receive it and the likes, right? But okay, I, I guess I guess that's that's the only way we can relate it when you think about it. After all, considering Sessie's uh, favorite word, the globalization of things, and um, yeah, the the yeah. difficulty mm-hmm. stories have in permeating society now, uh, when it comes to the impact they're supposed to have, it then now becomes more of a personal thing. It has it's harder for it to have a broader impact unless you're like Harry Potter or something. Yes. <laughs> I was actually going to um, say something about that in that definitely I think back then stories had more impact in that something that was just a story had more potential to become like kind of part of the cultural fiber. It, you know, it had more of a potential to become something that people remembered and actually abided by. So if a story was made up or if a story came up about people not doing things on a certain day of the week or at a certain time of night or, you know, maybe not wearing this type of thing or that type of thing. It was generally more abided by um, because back then people, I don't know, I feel like people had, is the word I want to use, is it that they had more belief in that or that they just were more susceptible to cultural like norms and they were, they were more likely to follow. I guess. To follow the rules uh, that came up that in stories true. like that. Whereas now, now it does definitely depend on, on the individual and how how susceptible they are to um, to being affected by things like that. I also think, like, like you said, like one of the effects of globalization, right? In the past, a lot of African societies were very communal. So I think it was easy for you to mirror the habits of whatever your family member or something is doing right but these days we're Mm -hmm. arguably very like individualistic right so a lot of stories again is interpreted by the personal like it depends on the person receiving it so i think because of the change in like the dynamics or like the whatever the way our society is i want to mention something though that i just would not be happy if i didn't mention in this episode when we're talking about storytelling and it's kind of the effect of storytelling on collective consciousness so it has a little bit to do with this question um in that like and i want to talk about nollywood specifically as you know halima knows nollywood is one of my favorite topics i've been trying to get her to do a nollywood episode for like years now i think why is because she resisting i don't know she's like it's not history and i'm like of course it's history of course it is <clears throat> anyway 
a lot of so <laughs> there are so many things that Nollywood has done within and I can only use Nigerian society here as what's the word now? Microcosm? Micro you know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so oh thank you, yeah. So um Nollywood has had such an effect on Nigerian society much more of an effect that many people realize. And if you think about how it has evolved over the years, so Nollywood had like different phases, right? At the very beginning of Nollywood, we just had all these moral lessons type stories. Uh, are like at the earliest Nollywood that I can remember. It's a super Yes, story. we had super story. We Yo, had a Karashika, <laughs> which was... Yeah, it, wasn't just, had... it wasn't just Nigeria, it was Ghana as well. We... You have watched a lot of those as well. Yes, Nollywood was it. Nollywood is very big in the Caribbean, guys. Nollywood is big in the diaspora. Um, and it, yeah, we had all these stories. Yeah, super story, as you said, Shawari De ETC that told moral lessons. And then Nollywood had a religious phase where, you know, which is where behind every corner, which is where infecting your children, which is where feeding your children puff your children were flying to witches at night, which is this one was a witch, yes. that one was a witch. And rituals, witches. I remember watching one where there was someone gave a beggar, he gave a beggar money or something like that. PM? And the beggar was a witch. Uh, and so when the beggar received the, the money, the like she turned away and then the money turned into the guy's blood and she started licking it. Ah. <laughs> there are so many Damn. horrible can no- I like, you, can I you pounding babies in the beginning oh God. of the movie. The religious phase of Nollywood, I think, yes. is one of the worst. Because as Nollywood went through a religious panic, so too did Nigeria. In fact, it's a chicken and the egg situation. Who can we say can we say that Nigeria was in a religious panic and so Nollywood reflected that religious panic or Nollywood started a religious panic in Nigeria. I don't know. But there was a period in Nigeria where witchcraft was around every corner. Your parents would tell you, don't accept this person's food. This person is trying to kill you. Don't eat this auntie. Don't eat puff puff on the road. The person, the woman innocently frying puff puff might be trying to recruit children by feeding them. Anything, yeah. anything was, you know, a portent of witchcraft. Um, and, and as Nollywood evolved, or as I think it's kind of like Nollywood is a reflection of Nigerian culture, but I don't know if that like reflection also feeds into the culture and vice versa. Um, and I just think it's interesting because it's kind of a collective consciousness then, as people have these memories of when all those Mike Bamelui, there was a particular production company, I don't remember what they were called, which very much emphasized witches. And then at that time, there were like persecutions of children in in a lot of Nigerian societies where people were accusing them of being witches and starving them and all kinds of horrible things were happening. And in fact, still happen, I think, in some places. So, yeah, I just wanted to discuss. Interesting. Interesting. I was going to ask a question about Nollywood, but I guess we've already done that. (laughs) Um, All right. So I, I I do have a penultimate question uh but what do you what what would you say is the influence of um the local oral tradition on modern writers um for one i think it's a source of inspiration for them because a lot of um modern and contemporary writers basically they do a lot of retelling so love in color by bolu babalola for example in that book she basically retold like stories that were told to us orally like the story of yemoja for example the mermaid was it no the story of oshun the god water goddess so she basically retold that story and oshun 
in modern day in her world was a swimmer right so a lot of the stories that have been passed down orally a lot of contemporary writers are telling them in stories that we can relate to so that's really interesting to see so for me i think a major influence of like oral tradition and like the stories that have been passed down is inspiration for example the Oriwe podcast right or like the Oriwe website the entire Oriwe company in summary it was an inspiration like that came sexy from like archiving our stories and everything so a lot of these stories were orally told to us right and then we're just trying to make it into content that people of our generation can relate to and very much agree with Halima also I love loving color by Bulu if you're listening I love you please come on our podcast thank you (laughs) shameless plug I love that okay Uh, I have one question though so I think it's about time I have have one one more question before we go on if we look at I'm going to I'm going to make reference so if we look at um, the west right we've seen all these Viking stories like from Norse mythology we've seen all these Greek mythological stories retold without uh, the sort of negative religious thing that backs it like the way you mentioned about Nollywood right but then when it comes to telling African stories African mythological stories it always has to be pitted against Christianity in a sense you know you know how that happens over here but it does not happen in the west what do you think what do you think the disconnect is or do you have any ideas I have many ideas. I have many thoughts. Sometimes I lie awake thinking about this in frustration and I grind my teeth in my dreams. Because wow. it's so frustrating. <laughs> I think I opened a can of worms. Don't you think? It's so frustrating and so upsetting. Because other mytho- like other mythologies, other societies, they learn about their own mythologies. You know, they're interesting. There's stories to them. There are museums where they go and learn about their mythology. But no... Us Africans, our own is bad. Witchcraft, everything bad, bad, bad. Anyway, <laughs> I just think it's, it's so sad. And it, it is also one of the reasons that we started away because, like, why should they get to enjoy their culture like that? Spread it like that. What's, like, what's the difference? There's, lit- there's no difference. It's all the same pantheons. It's, I mean, there's literally no difference. There's nothing negative, inherently negative about African culture. It's just that, unfortunately, Western religion has such a grip. It, like, grips. It's, it strangles many Africans in their sleep. That's... They just, they don't even want to think critically, many people, about anything else. So, like, they don't even want to consider that these things, I mean, we don't have, nobody's saying you should go and follow your traditional religions. How many people worship Zeus now? Like, does anyone? I don't know. Probably people still do. But people, people like The reason I asked this question is because I remember as a kid growing up, we used to watch, like, these series on, on, like, the Chinese monkey king god. Uh, what's his name? What's this? Is this? I, I forgot his name. Sun yeah, Sun Wukong. Like oh. we used to watch Journey to the West. I used to. We watch a lot of things about Zeus. We watch a lot of things about Thor and everything. Nobody in my house has complained. But if I put on something, we even see stuff like the Little Mermaid, and nobody bats an eye. But if you mention Mamiwata in the Honestly, house, Honestly, it's so you irrational. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I like that comparison. Yes. Little Mermaid to Mermaid Water. Yes. That's actually What's the a very excellent. Like that paints the picture yes. perfectly. Perfectly <laughs> Like we can accept the other one, but ah well. Anyway, my point is, I think it's just a framing thing. The way the um, 
our traditional stories or like our histories and everything that have been framed to us is like it comes from a place of a, a place of fear like we've been told that if you go near the water or if you go mommy if you go near mommy water she'll take you or like something bad will happen to you or whatever but the little mermaid was not sold to us in that i way. very like, much so agree just, with you Helena. i just think it's a frame everything is marketing as, <laughs> <laughs> like as someone who studies marketing i'm telling you literally everything is marketing and it's just how it's been marketed. And I'm just glad that now there is a, a, a little bit of a renaissance. <laughs> or not enough of a renaissance in my opinion. But, you know, bit by bit it's coming out. There are some, there's some depiction at least of African mythology on our screens now. You know, in Netflix there's there's an African mythology um, TV show or movie that just came out on Netflix. There's Anikulako. There's American Gods, which is not a story written by an african but i mean it's neil gaiman yes. and neil gaiman is an amazing writer um and the, there's a depiction on television of anansi and there's a depiction on television of, of billy kisu and yeah, yeah. things like that so it's coming it's coming gradually um yeah hmm. all right so um i have one question to close out but before that i just want to point out it seems we gave a lot of passes to the um Arabs and Islam. Uh, we spoke a lot about the impact Western religion has had on the stories and the way we tell the stories, but we didn't consider the way the Eastern mm. religion has, well, technically Christianity is also Eastern because it's not it's from yes. Middle East. But you get my point um, because I think with the same uh, restrictions of um, uh, your religion is not the right way kind of thinking. The same can be said for Islam as well. Uh, basically, all the Abrahamic faiths. And I think that does stem from a major issue with that is the fact that unlike if you pick our native religions or if you pick the Far Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they believe in a plethora of gods. But then the Abrahamic faiths believe in one God. So it's like my way or the highway. And the highway is wrong and it is filled with snakes and booby traps and it leads you to hell. Yes. Essentially. It's the narrow so path. I think Yeah, yeah, exactly. So essentially if you're listening to this, all the ways we were speaking about the the ways of not all, but many of the ways we're speaking about how um the Western uh approach of Christianity in Africa has impacted the way we tell our stories. A similar thing can be said for um, the, Islamic, the uh, Islamic, yes, the Islamic religion and yeah, its influence in Africa as well. So um, anyway, I just want to close this out with a simple question. So for Halima and then uh, Ceci, who are your favorites or what are your favorite um, African folktales? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, mine is so I like water, right? I've always, Jesus. I don't know, I just like water for some reason. It sounded right? a lot like some mother water. <laughs> don't judge me. It's just, it's just the thing. <laughs> so I really like um folk tales about like Yemoja. So Yemoja is mm -hmm. the 
okay. Nigerian version of Mami Water, basically. And um, so I've always really liked Yemoja's stories. And then I like Oshun. Oshun too is a water goddess. So basically, um, stories that... I, and that's why I also really like The Little Mermaid. I really love that show. Any show that has mermaids in them, I just watch it because I like it. <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite one, but I have one that has always been my most memorable one. The one that stuck in my memory the most is the Orian Olajimoke one. Um, which was, I, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but basically it was, it's about a girl who ended up married to a headless guy. Uh, no, wow. to a guy who had a head and no body. What? I don't want to explain it because it's going to take, you should go and read about it on our okay, website. Okay, okay, okay. We might, we might have you on another episode <laughs> Just to tell, to tell that, that story. story. So, that would be yes. amazing. What's the name of the story again? Ori and Ola Jumoke. I'm curious, what are yours? Like, Serum and Brian, what are your favorite African folktales? Um, hmm. Well, mine is not really a folktale folktale. It's more of a retelling of, uh, of an actual historical event. But of course, with its embellishments, I would go for the, um, the epic of Sunjata, the founder of the Mali Empire. The story is very sweet. has a lot of supernatural superhuman elements in there that just makes it epic Amazing. including people creating holes through mountains with a spear so it's a lovely story <laughs> and if i had to guess serum zone is going to be the story of muendo actually no it's not going to be muendo oh yes i know i love muendo a lot i actually do love muendo a lot because muendo was a crazy story to me when i when i first when i first learned about it but like Brian, I'm actually going to go with the story of um, one of my people. There's a historical telling that was retold in a very, very exaggerated manner too. Oh. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. Togbe Charlie. I don't know if you guys have heard that story, but if you ever read... Togbe Charlie was an actual person that existed, but then the account of what he did, indistinguishable from from... <laughs> from someone's wild imaginations so that would be my favorite Moindo is a right, second yeah. very close second for me um if, if you are listening to this episode and you have never listened to we we also do have some folklores we do have the story of sunjata and the story of Moindo yes in some of our early episodes so you can check them out and talk with charlie as and well. uh yeah yeah talk with charlie's story too we also have that one uh so Thank you for joining us. Please uh, also thank you, Oriri, for joining us, Ceci and Halima. Yes. And uh, we'll put a link to their podcast great. in the show notes as well. So you can. Yes, we would. Check out. We will put the link stuff. to all their pages. Mm-hmm. Yes, their podcast and their website and their Instagram page as well. Their online university. Yes. Basically. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Okay, so thank you for joining us, and remember to uh, remember to like, subscribe, share, and all of those other things. Yeah. And uh, yes, follow us on Instagram. Stay, stay no notified. Stay, stay no to what? Yeah, she says stay notified. Oh, stay notified. Stay notified. Right. I'm helping you guys. Yeah, okay guys. So please stay yeah. notified. And uh peace. peace.